welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we try to find the absolute best albums from the 1980s. Here in season two, we examine the work of a different artist or band each episode. This week, we heard the nine studio albums of the English post-punk band The Fall. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron Keck. How are you, Aaron? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. You know, the, the Fall are one of those bands that I think can often seem impenetrable from the outside. Uh, I hadn't really <laughs> listened to them prior to this episode. I mean, they have so many albums with so many different lineups across four decades. I think they're a daunting band, to say the least. Uh, Aaron, did you have any prior experience with The Fall? I had none. I was very, very unfamiliar. I'd vaguely heard about this band, and that is about as far as I'd gotten. Mm-hmm. For me, like one of my favorite bands of the 90s and probably in general is Pavement, and they got compared to The Fall a lot, especially early on. Uh, I think mainly for Stephen Malkmus' vocal style is kind of similar. But uh, mm. I think that comparison works to a point, but Pavement, are they're much more laid back, more melodic, less acerbic. Uh, I think their first album, I can hear some similarities, but listening to The Fall now, I, I think uh, I also heard a little bit of... Um, uh, James Murphy and LCD Sound System. I could see that influence, mm. which then was confirmed when I Googled it and saw that he called the fall his <laughs> his Beatles. So I, like, I don't, okay, I don't know. Is it, is it? I, I'm not sure. Is it possible to be more melodic and less acerbic than uh, than the fall? Because when I when I think of a band that's melodic and not acerbic at all, the fall is is one that comes straight <laughs> to mind. Yeah, I mean, when James Murphy says it's his Beatles, it's like well, you're just listening to basically the Beatles anyway. What are you even talking about? Yeah, I uh, I did a little bit of research. I, I actually didn't do I I don't do research in advance on these bands, but I'll be as I'm listening to albums, I'll be looking up stuff about the albums and about the band and kind of following through. And mm -hmm. I may recall back in episode one of season one of this podcast. Uh, we, we listened to, or, or let me start that sentence again. You, uh, mm -hmm. compelled me to listen to <laughs> an album by Sonic Youth. And from that point on, like my, my dislike of artists is measured by how close they are <laughs> to Sonic Youth. And mm -hmm. I discovered in listening to the fall that Sonic Youth loved this band so much that they covered uh, four of their songs, or three of their songs and one of their covers for an EP that came out in the early 90s. And that that was a red flag for me. Um, <laughs> and it was a red flag that popped up as I was listening to some of these albums. So uh, I, think, I think you're going to end up liking this band more than me, but we'll find out. <laughs> well, I did promise that there wouldn't be a Sonic Youth episode, but I didn't promise that there wouldn't be a Sonic Youth, uh, like, inspiration episode nine albums by this band i listened to nine <laughs> nine cruel, I'll, I'll admit. <laughs> plus so all the back... singles that uh that that weren't on the original albums either some of which were yeah. some of which were my my favorite songs from the fall uh which i don't know if we'll we'll get to talk about the the non-album singles but those are worth uh, mentioning as well yeah, definitely. I, I, was, I kind of looked at after, like, I sent you the list of the albums and stuff and, and kind of mentioned that some of these had additional tracks and stuff. Mm -hmm. I compared kind of what the albums looked like on Spotify and saw that for the most part, I think it pretty much lined up. So 
I think we probably heard mostly the same song. Oh, absolutely not, Andy. I, I oh. got on Wikipedia <laughs> and looked up the original album tracks and limited myself to those. Um, <laughs> But but I did listen to the I, I did listen to the the like top uh, non-album singles as well, so we can talk about that. Okay, yeah, that's true. They probably have which songs have been listened to the most, and I'm sure if you saw one from that era, you might have heard it, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Well, uh, let's dig in. I, I watched. I didn't read any books for this one, but I watched. They have an hour-long uh, BBC documentary that came out in 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty good and is on YouTube, uh, which I will link to. And there's also uh, a lot of fan sites out there that have tons of information about uh, basically everything you could want to know. I think there's uh, the Reformation site, which has uh, a list of all of their songs and production credits and tour dates when they played songs. Uh, the Annotated Fall lyrics, which has is just what it sounds like. It's people commenting on every song's lyrics. Uh, and the fall.org had you know bevy of other information nice. plus a bunch useful. of plus a bunch of interviews with mark smith that are that are up online as well which I, I i did listen to some of those yeah and some of these um albums if there are some of the newer versions that i have even in their liner notes have interviews with some of the band mm. members which is cool yeah so yeah, there's a lot out there. And, and different interviews there. every different interviews every album because it's a completely different lineup from one album <laughs> to the next. Yeah, practically. That you know, two of the quotes that I saw floating around a lot in reference to the fall, uh, one from Marky Smith himself saying, "If it's me and your granny on bongos, then it's the fall." Then it's which, the fall. Yep. <laughs> it was, it was it turns out to be quite apt and then, accurate. Uh, yep. Uh, John Peel, the BBC DJ who was their early and often champion, uh, described them as always different, always the same, which is true, I think, both for the lineup and for whatever song you're listening to at, that, sure. at that moment. Uh, but Mark E. Smith was born in uh, Lancashire, northwest England, March 5th, 1957. His family moved to Man- the Manchester area when he was a child, and he grew up there along with his three younger sisters. Uh, and then in 1976, he and some friends saw the Sex Pistols perform in Manchester, which was their second ever performance. And like so many others around that time, were inspired to start a band of their own. Mm-hmm. So Mark, along with uh, Martin Brahma on guitar, Tony Friel on bass, Steve Ormond on drums, and Smith's girlfriend at the time, Una Baines, on keyboard, The Fall was born. Well, at least the first incarnation of The Fall, anyway. Uh, they took their name from the title of an Albert Camus novel, uh, modeled their sound after not just the Sex Pistols, but Captain Beefheart, Velvet Underground, Bo Diddley, the German experimental group Can, Stooges. Mm. So pretty eclectic tastes in both music and literature. The one thing that I didn't get to do before we we started recording here, but I kind of want to, because uh, one, you know, I had, didn't really know very much about The Fall. I also know nothing about Can. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's a band that just kept coming back and back in, in all of the, the things that I was reading about the falls, how influenced they were by this particular band. So I need to go back and, and give that band a listen as well. Yeah, definitely. They, they're on my list for sure. If we ever yeah. do Andy, here's the seventies. I think they'll, <laughs> we'll how familiar are you with Captain Beefheart though? Cause I, I sat down and, and subjected myself to, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the album, uh, Shoot, I'm looking this up. Trout, whatever. Oh, uh huh. I th- I think I know which one you're talking about. I've heard some of it. I Trout mask repl- replica. It, yeah. yeah, which is just wild as hell. Uh-huh. 
very you know same kind of uh, camp as frank zappa sort of mm-hmm. had to freak out kind of weird uh definitely you can see you know the fall could certainly be fans of them for sure yeah yeah weirder than frank zappa i think is captain yeah. beefheart at least that particular album uh, but you know, around this time, Smith is 19. He's working at the docks, uh, living with Una Baines. It would be the first of many girlfriend bandmates. Uh, but then only guitarist uh, Martin Brahma would make it to the first album's recording, so there's already staff turnover in this band. Uh, <laughs> Steve Orman would leave within a year, replaced by Carl Burns on drums. A few different bassists would come and go before Mark Riley joins in 1978, and even Una Baines herself would be replaced by Yvonne Paulet. And this is the lineup that record the first studio album live at the Witch Trials, which is not a live album, but their first studio album. I'm uh, telling you, when there's, when there's that much turnover, there's something wrong with the boss. <laughs> yeah, that's usually the case. And is uh, certainly will prove to be the case, I think, here. But, <laughs> uh, that uh, first record of theirs come out on Step Forward Records. Uh, I think uh, I did listen to that and their second one just once over. I think there's there's a song on there that stood out called Repetition, which emphasizes perhaps the one common theme that would define the fall's music uh, as it evolves over the years. Their songs are a lot of times built on kind of one repeated musical idea, which is then expanded over anywhere from three to eight or nine minutes, depending on the song. After which trials, the lineup would change again. Steve Hanley would join the band on bass. Uh, Mark Riley would switch to guitar, and he would also take over keyboard duties as Yvonne, uh, her brief tenure, would end. And guitarist Craig Scanlon would join the band, and Mike Lee replaces Carl Burns on drums. And some of these changes took place even during the recording of their second album, Dragnet, which was released in October of 79 which uh, features primarily this lineup with Yvonne appearing on a couple of tracks prior to her departure. But this is all preamble to their third album, the first one we're going to discuss here, uh, and the first on the then-nascent Rough Trade label. Uh, I'm going to play the song New Face in Hell, and then we will discuss the album Grotesque After the Gram, released in November of 1980. Secrets and scandals of deceitful type proportions. A guest goes next door to his neighbor, secretly excited, as aforementioned was a hunter who radio enthusiast wanted friendship and favor on.
that uh, kazoo part that you hear in that song is played by Kay Carroll, who is the band's manager uh, and Mark's girlfriend at the time. And she would manage the band for three more years after that and also contribute a few more kazoo parts as well. Yeah. There are there are some things that I really do like about this band. One, and this is this puts uh, this puts the fall uh, definitely one up on Sonic Youth in my book. Is that you know one of the one of the things that I objected to about Sonic Youth was that they were a bunch of rich kids pretending to be uh, angsty angsty poor kids, and these are actually angsty poor kids. Like these are <laughs> actually like Mark Smith worked at the docks. He grew up poor. Like he he's actually legit. Uh, so I appreciate that uh, about him. And the other thing that I love about The Fall is their willingness to to just go all in on their vision. And that includes uh, multiple songs with kazoo parts, because why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do appreciate that. I, I think, yeah, it's stuff like that where there's just like important little moments of levity where like if this mm-hmm. band took themselves too seriously, it would be mm-hmm. insufferable. Yes. Which it, and yeah. it's, it teeters on that edge of insufferability a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely a political band, but the the politics are very tongue in cheek and and you said acerbic, like definitely like mm-hmm. sardonic, sarcastic, uh and and very un uh, very not earnest, not super serious. Still political and still having something to say, but not in a like we should all get together and be be very serious about this kind of way. Like that's one thing they never did. Yeah, I think the the lyrics oftentimes can be they can be dark and they can be dense, but there is also also like a sense of playfulness a little bit too. I think. Mm. My favorite song off of, oh, keep going. Oh, no, and that's just like, a, you know, adding a kazoo to that just drives home the, right. that fact, I think. My favorite song off of this album is The Container Drivers, which yes. is an, a good example of what I think is going to be a recur, or what is, I think, actually a recurring theme uh, with fall songs, which is not so much being political, but just making basic observations about people or about things or events and just setting those observations to kind of repetitive atonal music and having Mark Smith deliver those observations in Mm -hmm. that particular voice of his. And just by doing that, it comes out sounding political, even though it's not necessarily that there's no political statement really in the container drivers, but it's a political song. And there's quite a few of those over the course of over the course of the 80s with them. Yeah, that that was another one of my favorites from this record, and mm-hmm. uh, it it drives home like you know I mentioned Bo Diddley being one of his uh, favorite artists, one of like the only moments in that BBC documentary where he, Mark is like actually looks happy and is praising somebody is when he's describing <laughs> meeting Bo Diddley. Like he lights up as if like that's the best. Like he met Santa Claus that day. Like that's the only nice. time he even looks happy in that whole hour. I think. But, <laughs> to each their own yeah but it, it, it that one was a fun one i also like uh and on the cd version of this uh the song totally wired which was a single from around yeah. this time yeah that's a great yeah one too. totally wired a totally wired
I'm going to have a question about Totally Wired later, but uh, I'll leave it for now. Okay. <laughs> uh, the cover... But yes, I, but it, the spoiler alert, yes, I agree with you. Totally Wired is a great song. <laughs> okay, good, yeah. Uh, the cover was illustrated by Mark's sister, Suzanne, also, which is a fun cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during this... Uh, so right before this, actually, drummer Mike Lee leaves and is replaced by Steve Hanley's younger brother, Paul, who was 16 at the time. Uh, and this would uh, start to usher in what would become the short-lived two-drummer version of the band because uh, Peter, Paul was too young to go on tour to the States, being only 16 years old. So uh, Carl Burns comes back to the band as the drummer, but then when they're done touring, they decide to just keep both of them and uh, record as a two-drummer band. Uh, they release an EP called Slates on Rough Trade uh, before going to the studio for their next full-length Uh, Hex Induction Hour, which is released in March of 1982. I'm going to play a little bit of the second song on the album, Jawbone and the Air Rifle, and then we'll discuss the album. probably my favorite on the album but right before it the opening track the classical about 30 seconds into it had me going well i stepped in it again didn't i (laughs) because uh he essentially mark essentially says a uh, more offensive version of token black person uh to which i will refer back to the camille collins essay i quoted during the x episode oh yeah that's right but uh you know just another white punk deciding to try on a uh, racial slur in his lyrics, which uh, obviously I don't endorse at all, and it didn't it didn't do any favors for the album after that. Taking a stand on the issues of the day. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, uh, it, it kind of comes back again in in um, Who Makes the Nazis later in the album, where a homophobic I, slur appears as well. I was actually gonna to go uh, over to Who Makes the Nazis, which I think might be one of my least favorite songs in the entire oeuvre. Partly for that reason, I guess, but partly mm-hmm. because that is one of the few, like we just talked about, the fall being kind of a, a an apolitical political band that doesn't ever like get earnest with their lyrics. But Who Makes the Nazis is kind of 
kind of struck me as as Smith's attempt to be political, and mm-hmm. like there just wasn't any there there with the substance. Like just just stick with the random observations, I think. Yeah, uh, which he does do uh, also on this album in a song that isn't going to make my. It's not going to make my top ten list, but it's a song that I kind of kept coming back to, and it's a song that. Uh, Smith and the Fall kept coming back to later because they kind of redid it for a later album, which is Hit Priest, uh, mm-hmm. which is another one where, you know, I'm just going to talk about I'm just going to talk about the Hit Priest and just me making the observation without saying anything at all about it is going to make the point for me. He has enough trust in himself that mm-hmm. uh, he's willing to to go there on a few songs. And Hit Priest is the one that stands out for me as the the top song on this album, which I actually think is one of their better albums. Yeah, I think, you know, the the two drummer aspect of it is actually pretty cool. I think it's, it makes the whole record very driving and very per- percussive, obviously. But I think the whole thing has a very full sound that's that's really nice. I, I liked um, the song Winter or the two songs Winter, which span the, uh, the LP sides. I thought that was a pretty good, like, uh, kind of grimy mood piece that kind of... Uh, became the centerpiece of the album so was there a reason and i never did get an answer to this when i was when i was looking was there a reason why winter was split up between the end of side a and the beginning of side b or was that just where this where the the record broke i i never saw one way or the other i think it was done deliberately as far as i can tell so i think they just wanted that kind of transition probably from side one to side two to be the same song I know it does kind of it's it's a little jarring I guess it's almost like uh, you know the eight track tape skipping to the next or to the next part of the song in the middle of the song but there's a couple of those uh, there's a couple of those like just in the course of music history where the album is really shaped by the the medium that you're printing it on like the difference between side a and side b actually matters as opposed to when mm-hmm. you're listening to it on cd and you're just going straight from one song to the next and it also happens in reverse too like with uh one of like one of my favorite albums of all time and again this is me taking a stand on the issues of the day which is abbey <laughs> road like i know just really going out there on a limb and saying that's a good album but one <laughs> yeah. of my favorite moments in that album listening to it on cd was this like sudden break at the end of i want you she's so heavy and then it goes right from that into uh here comes the sun i think it's here comes the sun mm-hmm. um and it's just such a cool moment that goes from this like swelling and then all of a sudden it cuts off and then it goes into this like super quiet song and you only get that on CD. Like if you listen to the the, the original album, like one song ends side A and then the other song begins side B and that cool moment doesn't happen until the album comes out on a different medium later. I always thought that was really weird. Yeah, it definitely helps to like if you're listening to this, you know, in that fade between winter part one and two, then, you know, you've you've switched sides. Now you're on the other side of the record, which you wouldn't maybe have noticed otherwise. And uh, I think, uh, you know, if there's a if anybody's making an Andy, here's the 80s uh, bingo sheet, then you can all stamp your Beatles uh, corner at this at this point. We've mentioned it for this. You already talked about the Beatles earlier in this episode. That's true. You're at that corner already. Well, then maybe we need a separate Abbey Road uh, stamp also. That comes up <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it is a very good album. Uh, 
I was just double checking. Nazis yeah. are bad. Abbey Road is good. Saying the N word is bad. See, like all of all of these hard, uh, hard hot takes are are coming yeah. flying fast and furious in this episode. These are the lessons we need to impart onto our young listeners. I think uh, they did bring back actually. So the Fall Live, a lot of times their songs have a, a fairly short shelf life. They play them for about a year or two, a little bit before the album to get them together, and then afterwards. Uh, and then they kind of retire. A market a lot of times does not has no interest in returning to a song, save for a scarce few. Uh, and actually, I saw somebody post that in their 2002 shows, they actually brought back the classical without the offending line in it. So at least there's yeah. some progress made there, I guess. Isn't there, there was one song that they brought back and started playing again, and that might have even been the classical or one of their one of their uh, music critic fans from England actually flew from London to California just to see them live in the hopes that they would play this song that they had started playing again. <laughs> I believe it. It seems like the kind of band, I mean, from just reading the websites I've been on, like if you're a fan of the fall, you are all in. I mean, it's kind of a Grateful yeah, Dead yeah. type for like reverence. Yeah. Uh, but the band, of course, quickly would return to the studio after this to record what was going to be just a couple of singles and ended up becoming their fifth full-length album, uh, released in September of 82, just six months after Hex Induction Hour, is Room to Live. I'm going to play a little bit of the song Marquee Cha-Cha, and then we will discuss the record. Marquee Cha-Cha! South America, and nothing to go home for. Just another breath and a bar. And then the sun is comes over to me. I'm just a jumpers, a broadcaster. That's how I came to be. Marquis Cha Cha. single out what does it concern me about god rules to my native country in everything i think for me it's a better life here and i am not a traitor marquis cha-cha and margaret thatcher is a hell of a drug <laughs> yeah you know i don't think there's any other band you can say that on their record you would have to or you would hear a like calypso inspired punk song about the falkland <laughs> island war <laughs> you know that they were unique in that regard at the very least and and actually it the just the tabs that i would have open listening to these like i'm looking up the falkland islands i'm looking up different popes i'm looking up various <laughs> english kings like there's a lot to look up in these lyrics that's just for this album isn't it <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah because this is the this is the one that has another one of those songs on it, which is Papal Visit, which is basically just Mark Mark Smith saying, Papal visit, papal visit, the Pope is here. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I, I guess it is I guess it is a, a symbol of uh the decadence of late capitalism. But you know what? Whatever. Yeah. I think uh Marquis Cha Cha is the more interesting of the of the topical songs on the album. Probably. Yeah. Agreed. Um, at the very least musically, but probably also lyrically. And uh, I think, you know, this one 
is very kind of sparse and spontaneous sounding compared to even to Hex Induction I read before it, which kind of came about sort of because Mark would just get these ideas and bring in not even the full band all the time, but just maybe two or three of them and then just put down a track and then go on to the next one. So it's it has a very rough feel almost by design, which mm-hmm. uh, I think is cool, but also it noticeably sounds worse, I think, than the album right before it. Yeah, I I agree with that. This is this is Hex Induction Hour is one of my favorite albums of the nine. This is definitely my least favorite album of the nine. I think it's a I think it's a big difference, and I think that also underscores because yes, this album definitely has a rougher sound, and it shows it comes out in the music. The other albums have a rough sound as well, but it's a calculated rough sound, right? Like it's. Yeah it's meant to be and it's designed to be and it's carefully orchestrated in order to sound rough but isn't necessarily whereas this one uh is just straight up rough kind of the same thing with captain beefheart like you listen to that album and it sounds extremely rough like crazy rough but it's all very carefully put together to sound that way and there's Mm -hmm. a big difference between those two yeah, like a rough I, I album almost, and an album that's that's just designed to sound that way. Yeah, I almost wish that they would have taken just a few more weeks to like at least find better microphones or something because I think some <laughs> of these songs are pretty good, but they're a little tough to listen to compared to the rest. Look, of Look, it was the mid '80s. the The coal miners were on strike. We were at war with the fall. They needed to send all of their good microphones to the war effort. <laughs> yeah, to the fall. Thatcher was banning everything left and right. They made do with what they had. Yeah. This one was also released on the short-lived camera uh, record label as Mark was having some sort, of, some sort of feud with Rough Trade at the time, which caused him to send it and give this tape to a different different record label. But uh, I think there are still some decent songs on here. I liked the title track, Room to Live, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marquee uh, Cha-Cha was good. Yeah, Marquee Cha-Cha is an, another highlight. And I think there's a single uh, on the CD that came out around the same time from the same sessions called Fantastic Life. I think that mm-hmm. one's a great song, too. We talk about the the covers because you mentioned it with grotesque, but mm-hmm. the the covers of these albums are all uh, unique as well. Yeah, definitely. This one has some kind of printed uh, text on it as well as some handwritten uh, titles above the top. It's got a little picture of the band in the corner. Uh, there, this and Hex Induction, I think, are very striking, very text heavy album covers that really stand out. One of these albums, and I don't think it was Hex Induction Hour, is it? Uh, it might be Perverted by Language. I think we're about to get to it. Is this the album that they they released it, and like record stores wouldn't even display it because the the album just looked so the album cover just looked so thrown together. <laughs> that might be that might be Hex Induction actually. Was that Hex Induction? It's, I think it's so. one of the earlier albums. Yeah. Yeah, because there's just a lot of writing on it, and yes, I think yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you're you right. Know, we're just gonna play it safe and not even display whatever, whatever <laughs> you've written. There. Which, given I guess his reputation, is not unfair, but yeah, it, it is funny the stances that people would take. But it, I mean, it is interesting because the Falls is, is at this point one of the the more popular bands in britain at this time like they they had quite a bit of popularity so like the album was selling and there's nothing like there's nothing obscene about the album cover so right. like for for a record store to make that decision is uh 
says a lot about the aesthetics of record stores and the fact that they have certain bizarre standards that I don't think they would have ever even been able to articulate if you'd ask them. Yeah, it's true. But uh, they would return to the States again after this album to do a tour. And in April of 83, they would do a show in Chicago where a young woman by the name of Laura Salinger was in attendance. She was a fan of punk rock and had even been such a notorious Clash fan that her friends started calling her Brixton after the London Calling track, Guns of Brixton. And that nickname would get shortened to Brix by the time she saw that fall show in Chicago, after which she hung out with the band Falling, no pun intended, for Marky Smith, of his apparent charms, I guess, and followed them all the way back to Manchester where they would be married in July. And then this, of course, there was precedent for Mark's uh, partners to to end up in the band, so now... As they are recording their sixth album, uh, Perverted by Language, the Bricks era of the, the fall begins as this album is released in December of 83. So just a few months after she met them for the first time, she's already in the band. I'm going to give you a taste of the opening track, Eat Yourself Fitter, and then we will discuss the album. super fun song yeah that that one's a it's a great <laughs> opening track to set the tone mm-hmm. the title of course pulled from a uh, kellogg's slogan at the time which they were eager to make fun of i think uh let's see so you hear bricks doing some backing vocals there on that song she also sings and plays guitar on hotel bloedel uh and so she's not on every track here. They had recorded some beforehand, but this is she's I think already starting to make a little bit of an impact here. Yeah, I was I was excited about getting to this album because at this point in my listening to the fall, and again I'm doing research about the band while I'm listening. So by the time I get to perverted to, by language, I know that this is the beginning of the Bricks era and that one of the defining characteristics of the Bricks era is that Bricks kind of leads the band in a more uh, melodic kind of direction. And I was excited about listening to that and and hearing what she was going to bring. And then I listened to the album. It's like, well, she's got the one song and I didn't really like the one song all that much. Like her, her (laughs) contribution comes a little bit more later, but for this being the first bricks album, I feel more like this is the last pre bricks album than, than being the first Mm -hmm. bricks album. But I might it's be definitely it's definitely transitional, right? I yes. Mean, and yeah. The fact sure. that it comes out, like I said, December of '83, and they met in April of '83. So I mean, it it makes sense that she's not fully integrated into the group yet or into the sound, but uh, I think there's still that presence, and and it is actually I think the last one with the double drums too. So this yeah. is a a fully like a fully transitional record, really. 
So this is not a Brick Smith album, but what it is, I think, is a Steve Hanley album. Like, we haven't talked about Steve Hanley yet mm-hmm. as a bassist, but he's a great bassist, and this is the album where I really noticed that come out because some of my favorite songs off of this album, Eat Yourself Fitter is one, Smile is another one, mm-hmm. uh, are songs where the bassist is really the lead guitarist. Like, there's not really a a lead guitar so much as just a really prominent bass line on top of which the song is laid. And it's a great bass line in both cases. And, and for all, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later when we get to the future of the fall, but for, for Mark Smith, uh, to, to say that Steve Hanley was just kind of the driving force of the band. Uh, I think it's true. And I think it comes out more in this album than any of the other ones that we're going to listen to at least. Yeah. I actually made that same note for this album. I think this is where it, it, where Steve Hanley is the band secret weapon clearly. Oh yeah. Big time. Uh, my one of my standouts is uh, "I Feel Voxish," the song right after "Smile," mm-hmm. which I think is like one of their most melodic songs to date. At, like at this point, and it's all driven by that bass line that he makes too. this is their i think this is their best effort to this point there are stuff i liked on all the ones before but this is starting to become a more complete album i think for me yeah i liked uh the song garden too was kind of a cool one i thought which is like this kind of psychedelic creation myth kind of song Mm -hmm. uh but yeah this this would be their final record on rough trade uh they would sign to beggar's banquet in 1984 i got to work on their first band or the first album for that label, the band's seventh studio album, The Wonderful and Frightening World of the Fall, which was released in October of 84. And this is where there also starts to be two versions of each fall album. There's the LP and the cassette, and the cassette version would contain all of the singles and B-sides that led up to the album's release. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the CD versions mostly mimic that track listing as well. So I'm going to play one of the singles uh, that shows up uh, and that really starts to show that Brick's influence here beginning to creep in. Uh, this, maybe no pun intended, but a little bit of the song, C-R-E-E-P. Uh, let's take a listen to that. Stand up to electric dogs shatter. We pat you on the back. Your ears prick up. We call you Hitler and then kick you around like homogenized milk. Sounds loud. 
affliction You had less time he was around His oppression abounds His type is doing the rounds He is a scumbag A horrid, trendy wretch Black saucers At the back of your neck Interruptions so th- this one is clearly now Brix has had time to really settle into the band here. Yeah. And that yeah, poem is... at the start, I believe, is a, of her own writing, though somebody in mm-hmm. one of the comments tried to attribute it to Sylvia Plath, but nobody could verify that, so I'm going to assume it's a Brix writing. Might be. But yeah, this is like the most pop song they've done to this point, definitely. Yeah. For sure. I like this. I like the, the opening of this album, Lay of the Land and 2 by 4 like right, uh, yeah. one right on top of the other. They're good with uh, opening tracks. Like we just talked about, uh, just talked about Eat Yourself Fitter. We'll have a couple other like really good opening tracks coming down in, in mm-hmm. future albums. I think including the next album that we'll talk about. But, uh, but yeah, definitely like this is the first Brick Smith album for me, if not the, if, if it's not officially the first for me, it's, right. it's the first and it, yeah, you're right. It, uh, it comes out a lot more. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it, it fits in nicely with them switching to a new record label too, at this point. So like you get a nice clear delineation now they've, they've, this is the new direction that they've gone in yeah. and they get a, a fresh start kind of, but it still also is, sounds like the fall, you know? Yeah. Which is sad because rough trade is just the best name for a label. <laughs> yeah. Beggar's Banquet's not bad, you know. It's a Beggar's good Banquet's not record. bad, but they're ripping off the Rolling Stones. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I liked I like uh, Creep or C R E E P a lot. Uh, I liked um, the, the the like you said, Lay of the Land and Two by Four are a great one two punch at the start at the start mm-hmm. of the record. Um, and uh, Disney's Dream to Base towards the end of the record is about an actual trip to Disneyland where they where somebody died on the Matterhorn while they were there. Which I thought was interesting. Another, Which another is random such tab a, to have open. Such a crazy story. Because apparently, what's the what's the story? They get off, they get out of Disneyland, and or was it even the Matterhorn? Like they got off the Matterhorn, and Mark Smith has this like vision that the ride is evil, uh, yeah. and we need to leave right now. And then like later that day, a woman gets decapitated on the ride. And it's not like I looked this up. Like, first of all, yes, that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, it's not like that happens all the time. Like that ride has been around for, I think, close to 50 years now at this point. Only one person has ever died on the ride. And it was that woman that day that the fall yeah. just so happened to be there. And it's not like Disneyland in general is a scary or dangerous place. Like you can count the number of serious incidents on like one or two hands going all the way back to when the park opened in the mid fifties. It just so happens that the fall happened to be there riding the rides on the one day when the nastiest thing in the history of Disneyland ever happened. I blame the fall. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Maybe (laughs) did he, did he dream it or did he will it into existence? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, it is a crazy story that that because, like you said, they, these incidents are notable because of how infrequent they are in, in right? on Disneyland. But and so for them to be there Such that a, day is crazy. Yeah, 
I guess there's I guess there's a celebrity there every day, and it just so happened to be the fall on the day that right. this horrible thing happened. Yeah, anytime something like this, you just have to go around and hope nobody has a recording contract. <laughs> were you? We were we were in Disney World not that long ago. Were mm-hmm. Were you with us on the day that uh, uh, who was it? Ninety eight degrees was there. Yeah, uh, Nick Lachey. Yeah, Nick Lachey. Yeah, we walked past them right outside. It's a small world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> No one got decapitated on It's a Small World. <laughs> no, much lower chance of that happening. Some on, some on people small got world. irritated by the repetition of the song. <laughs> Though apparently, I think uh, I think Brick says in that same story that after they went on that Matterhorn and he was all freaked out, I think they went to Small World right afterwards in yeah. Disneyland. <laughs> to decompress. <laughs> yeah, it might have made it worse. I don't know. I think it might have, yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, this is definitely you know their most kind of catchy record so far. You got uh, three songs have a guest vocalist, Gavin Friday from the band Virgin Prunes, doing what uh, Marky Smith describes as an Irish Bowie accent, which I thought was interesting. It is a, he's a noticeable uh, additional voice to this record, I think. But uh, none of the songs that he did, I think, were any of my favorites. But this would be the last album that uh, Paul Hanley would play drums on, leaving Carl as the sole drummer once again. Uh, a man named Simon Rogers would join the band on bass and keys. Uh, Steve Hanley would actually take a few months off as he and his wife had a baby in the fall of 84. Uh, so once he, come, once he came back, Simon moved from bass to guitar, and Steve's returned to the band uh, as they played the UK and the US again on a tour in 84 and 85 before getting right back into the studio for their eighth album, uh, This Nation's Saving Grace, released in September of 85. Play a little bit of the song Bombast, then we will discuss the album. I'd misremembered it in my head. I was thinking Bombast was track one. It's actually track two. So going back to to Lay of the Land and Eat Yourself Fitter are still, I think, my two favorite opening tracks. But this whole album is is my favorite. 
Yeah, this is a really good one. And and it's, you know, Bombast is sort of the opening track in that, you know, sort the album's of, kind of yeah. bookended by uh, Mansion and two Encroachment Yarbles, which are kind of like little bookends to the record, little musical introductions. But I think Bombast is so good because it just, it shows how hard they can really rock, too, if they really want mm-hmm. to. But yeah, I think this is this is a very consistent, very fall but also it's their most accessible while also being very very intricate still and very exciting this is probably why it's my favorite of the albums because i'm i don't need to don't need to to make things up about it like i'm generally not going to be a huge fan of albums that go out of their way to be inaccessible so Mm uh for for the for this to be their most accessible album like me as this sort of mainstream guy listening to it in 2020 i'm like yep this is the one for me right here Uh yeah it's definitely just it's a fun ride from start to finish i think also mm-hmm. it has uh, i'm hoping you heard some of them but some of the best non-lp tracks show up on here too i think um the the songs vixen couldn't get ahead petty thief lout roland danny and cruiser's creek were all singles and b-sides released around this time that make it onto the cd and cassette that i thought are yeah. all fantastic also yeah it's a it's a good time uh, and then, of, of course, uh, I Am Demo Suzuki is a tribute to the singer of Can, who we mentioned earlier. So now Mark's, again, explicitly kind of paying tribute to them. One of my favorites on here actually ended up being uh, Paintwork, which is kind of towards right before Demo Suzuki, right. which is kind of just like a folksy kind of sound collage partially recorded in, in a hotel room, which I thought was just really fun and is inspired by... Uh, an actual painter at Mark's new house as, as described in the last song uh, by just telling him, stop messing up my paintwork. <laughs> like he's Mark's going <laughs> and ruining all the paint. Nice. Uh, funny. If your favorite song is paintwork, uh, go back to the song before that, my new house, which is, I think my favorite song off this album. Although there are several contenders. LA is another <laughs> really good one. That's a good one. Yeah. And the, the yeah, I mentioned it briefly, but Cruiser's Creek, I think, is a great song. It's mm-hmm. the last one on the CD version, and that's it's just like a great kind of blues rock sound that I thought they did a great job with. This is and this one's kind of considered a lot of people by a lot of people their their best album too. So I think this is where most people would point to as the most accessible and the, and the most successful, really, start to finish. Which of these albums was the most? think successful in terms of album sales was there was there one that stood out more than another i think uh, you know i i didn't see sales figures for these i think they they probably all sold okay i think Mm -hmm. probably my guess would have to be friends experiment which we'll get to later just because it had their biggest single on it as well yeah so i bet that probably is their best selling but i think uh you know i bet this beggar's banquet run probably is the most is the the best selling I would have to think, because certainly people still consider the Bricks era in general their best era. Mm. So I have to imagine that something within that Beggar's Banquet catalog is what is the best selling. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll get there. I think uh, when because of course the the train never stops at the fall, so they're right back in after touring <laughs> to record another album. Uh, around April of '86, Carl Burns decides that his time in the band is over. Uh, Paul Hanley would step back in for one session on the drums before Simon Wollstonecroft would take over full time. Uh, they bounced back between a couple studios before landing in Abbey Road. Oh, hey, there's Abbey Road again. Hey, uh, studios where they. Uh, that's if you missed that the stamp earlier, hit it twice now. <laughs> yeah, here's your second chance. 
the bulk of the album would be recorded there, or at least mastered, if not recorded. And the resulting album, the band's ninth, is Ben Sinister, released in September of 86. I play the opening track, R.O.D., and then we'll discuss the record. That's another good opening track. Yeah, that's a great opener too. I think it's just like all the other, I mean, it perfectly sets the tone for the rest of the record. And it just, it's such got such a great beat and rhythm again from, from the bass. Ben Sinister is, uh, as an album title is named after a Nabokov novel, right? So you've got a, Mm -hmm. you've got a band who's named after a Camus novel, naming their album after a Nabokov novel. So they have a really good taste in literature. Yeah, it's they they're very well-read band for you know being such working-class punks. You know they they get a lot of depth into the the lyrics that, and the song titles. You know from Mark, mm-hmm. it's it's there's a reason why there's site after site dedicated to dissecting all of this because there's a lot to dig into. I think. Oh yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think this is a great opening track. I think uh, shoulder pads. I think is a fun kind of poppy one that they put on here a couple times. Uh, and is actually inspired by uh, uh, Mark putting on a shirt of Brix's at one point that had shoulder pads in it, and that her mocking chorus to him was "M.E.S. and shoulder pads," and she would dance around and point at him. So that's where they built a song out of that. And this is actually another example of a song that they would keep in their live repertoire, uh, their cover of "Mr. Pharmacist," which is originally by a band mm-hmm. called The Other Half from 1966. This one, that one is actually one that would remain in their live set for almost the every show after this it seems like interesting it is it is a good song i think that one and rod are the two that stand out as my favorites from this album i'd for as for as for the for the type of band that the fall is and how important the lyrics are and the the songwriting is to them as a band it's surprising that they would pick out a cover as a song to to play over and over again i know I, i kind of wonder since you know, since Marky Smith would was so kind of intent on never looking back, and I, don't, I think maybe a cover stands out differently to him. Whereas maybe if he wrote yeah. a song in '82, he doesn't feel as relevant anymore in 2002. You know, so he's right. just going to leave it behind. And whereas, a but cover, if you're recording he, a song from 1966, it. then it it's going to be just as relevant <laughs> in 1990 as it is in 1988. Yeah, probably. Yeah, at least by his logic. But I guess it you know it makes sense in a weird way. I think. 
but I imagine, uh, you know, by this point, I guess you know what you're getting with a fall show. Or actually, it seems like a lot of times you didn't because it would be <laughs> sort of similar to the replacements. A lot of people going to these shows were kind of maybe hoping to see music, but maybe expecting to see more of a scene because I think right. they were often putting on wild shows that Mark would sabotage halfway through. If you're lucky, you got it to halfway, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, but this uh-huh. one, I think is another one just like uh, the last where the, the singles uh, that are on the CD and cassette versions are some of the great ones also. I love uh, the song Living Too Late. Um, and Hey Luciani is actually one that inspired a play that Mark would write about uh, Pope John Paul I, I believe. Mm-hmm. So now he's already, this is kind of the first taste of his interest in combining theater and music which we'll see again later. But I think that's a great song too. And it's B-side entitled is really great. Uh, I think this is another one where pretty much start to finish. I liked every song. This one, this one to me is, I mean, it's, it's, it's not bad, but this one to me is, uh, I think it's one of the better albums of the later eighties for them. Cause we've got, we've got two more left to cover and, and both of mm-hmm. them rank lower for me but i i think this is the point when the band starts to starts to drop a little bit like for me like nation saving grace perverted by language uh wonderful and frightening world to a lesser extent like those are the those are the the albums that stand out as my favorites about the time we get around to ben sinister like for me it starts there starts to be a drop okay yeah i think i definitely not much of one not at this point yeah, I think this is still uh, as far uh, when I'm listening I think this one still sounds as strong to me as Nation Saving Grace. Mm. Uh, I think but there there do begin to be some diminishing returns here I think. And you'll probably notice I mean this is for a band that changes members all the time I they haven't actually changed all that much the last few albums. I mean Right. You have um maybe some drummer some drummers have left here and there but I mean um the bassist that we mentioned, he's he's still going at it. Craig uh, Craig Scanlon, the guitarist, Steve Hanley, the bassist. The, those two and Bricks and Mark, I mean, they've kind of formed quite a foursome at this point that I think hasn't changed and, and has helped to grow the sound, but is now probably, uh, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, as they say, right? And I think probably nobody would get more contemptible than Marky e. Smith if you gave it a chance. Well, this is the thing. Like, I think, I mean, you're you're exactly right. Like, this band kind of holds together for a few albums here, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the band is more consistent in terms of its in terms of its personnel makeup uh, during the Brick Smith era versus any other time. Because I think my suspicion is, without knowing them personally and without knowing a whole lot about the band, I have a feeling Bricks is the one who is kind of holding it together. Uh, mm-hmm. if for no, and, and my only evidence for this is that a, you know, this happened, the bricks era happens to coincide with the time when, when the band holds together more than any other time. Also later when these band members eventually break away from the fall and go off and do their own thing. And I don't know if we'll talk about Steve Hanley and his, uh, ignominious departure they all wound up back with bricks like i think steve mm-hmm. hanley is is still playing in a band with bricks now isn't he like aren't aren't they still doing that or they were up until fairly recently yeah i think they have what was the name of the group that they put together that was them and some other fall members 
Yeah. I think it was The Fall In, maybe. Maybe. I think they were pl- doing some shows under the name The Fall In, and it was, yeah, it was Bricks and Steve and some other yeah. <laughs> ex-Fall members play, yeah, playing. Now the it's now it's Bricks and the Extricated, which is... Uh, okay, yeah. Which, again, like, talk about, like, talk about a, a band name that just straight up shouts out the fact that we have removed ourselves from this toxic <laughs> situation. Like, yeah. we have extricated ourselves from The Fall, and now we're here playing together. <laughs> that's right and the fall in i think is the there's a book where someone tries to track down every member who's ever been in the fall oh uh, nice i like that i definitely want to read I, I wanted to get it for this but it's i had enough to do for, for this you one. had enough to do yeah but I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that later that's a great concept for a book especially with this band yeah i know uh, but they would put on their uh, hey luciani play in december of that year and then went on a european tour uh, with a new keyboardist, Marsha Schofield, in tow. Uh, Simon Rogers grew tired of touring, but would at least manage to stick around for a couple more recording sessions before leaving the band for good. He would actually end up producing most of the sessions for the next album. And in February of 88, the band releases their 10th, The Friends Experiment. That album was preceded by two singles. Both were covers. There's A Ghost in My House, originally sung by R. Dean Taylor from 1966, and the song Victoria by The Kinks from 1969. I'm going to go ahead and play that one, and then we will talk about the Friends Experiment. sad about this this cover because and i love the kinks in in general and knowing that this is is it the fall's biggest hit uh of of them all victoria it's it's definitely yeah. up there this, yeah, was, this I, would be uh their best charting performance at uh, it would hit 35 on the main uk charts. yeah yeah uh, I didn't like it as much as their other, as some of their right. other singles. Like, we'll come back to Totally Wired, which which still comes back as my favorite like non-album single. I was expecting to like this one more than I did, and then I was just like, eh, I just want to get back to Marky Smith songs. I, I think you know it, maybe it was just because I'd listened to so much Fall by this point that mm. uh, even their more poppy songs, when this song came on, it was like a breath of fresh air. For me. <laughs> like it was just such a perfect pop song that I was like, this. This song is amazing. Uh, even knowing it was a cover, I was like, I, I almost wanted to start it over immediately after I heard it again. Mm. So this was the standout on the album for me okay, in general. Okay. But I, I think, uh, and then did uh, the song right after it, Athlete Cured, did that sound at all familiar to you? Uh, no, it didn't. Should it have? 
the bass line from that song was actually taken directly from Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight from Spinal Tap. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's why I've only seen Spinal Tap like one and a half times. So, oh. Yeah, as soon as it came on, I was like, is this another cover? And then I know <laughs> it can't be, but why does it sound so familiar? And then I'm then impressed up, that you recognize the bass line from a Spinal Tap song. Like, that's good. Uh, yeah, I, I love that movie. I've seen it many times. I need to go back and watch it again. The one time I watched it, it was a group of us and we were like crashing at someone's house and it just happened to be on TV. So we watched it at like one o'clock in the morning. Uh, it's a it's a decent movie to watch at one o'clock in the morning. Like you could definitely do worse, but I, mm-hmm. I don't have super strong memories of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's worth going back to, I think, definitely. Yeah. But especially, you know, when we're listening to all these 80s rock bands, you know, t- to go watch a mockumentary about them is is always fun yeah uh but this one yeah i mean like we said that was their biggest charting single of all time was was victoria um and then it was for me the the standout of the record there's also a single they released um called hit the north which is on the cd Mm -hmm. version of this which a lot which ended up in a lot of lists that i saw of their favorites but honestly that one it didn't really do anything for me yeah me either that was that was another one i think i listened to victorian hit the north back to back and i was like yeah in both cases, I was not a fan of either one. Yeah. What What were some of your tracks that stood out on this one? From this one, uh, I, I kept coming back, and maybe this is just, oh, I like the concept of, because I've, I've said this already a couple of times, like the concept of we're going to make a song in which I just, like I sit here and I talk about the, the environment around me, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to make it out like this is a, like, hardcore political statement about the the state of 20th century british society uh the stake place um (laughs) that one is a pretty good one yeah it's it's a fun song but it really is basically just mark smith like looking around a room and going the carpet is red and a little (laughs) bit torn those people over there are eating mashed potatoes the stake place (laughs) for like what six minutes and I, i i was totally in for it four minutes Tactor handles, candelabra lion's head, fear butchers display too. The stake place, the stake place. I, I like to picture like. You know, him and Bricks out to dinner at a steakhouse and he's looking around <laughs> crafting this song. She's like, Mark, just eat your steak. This is our anniversary. <laughs> you will not ruin this for me. <laughs> maybe, maybe that is what Bricks happened. knew what to... she was getting into. She knew that that <laughs> yeah, steak dinner to. was going to get ruined. <laughs> or maybe, maybe she went there the week before and thought, oh, this would be the perfect subject for our next song. I got to bring Mark. Yeah. <laughs> But, oh, sizzler. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this, <laughs> this one, I have, like I said, I think this is probably one of their better selling ones, and it usually ends up fairly well received by critics, but I think this is, it is I'm starting to notice a decline by this album, mm. I think. I think it's it just it wasn't quite as compelling as some of their other ones. Yeah, I agree with that. This yeah, one and that. also the next one, which I was really hoping mm-hmm. I was going to love just because of how 
unique the the origin story of it was but both of yeah. them i think at the end yeah so after touring europe and the u.s again uh, marky smith had as i said on another theatrical project collaborated with dancer michael clark who he had previously worked with uh, during hey luciani and they worked on creating a rock ballet about william the orange called i am curious orange the name of the show is a play on a set of uh, Swedish erotic art films called I Am Curious Yellow and I Am Cur- Curious Blue from the 60s. Uh, there are some clips of this ballet that they put on in that BBC documentary, but sadly I couldn't find a complete performance of it anywhere. Mm. Uh, but it's safe to say that it's very loosely based on William of Orange, considering at one point Bricks is wheeled out on a giant cheeseburger. Yeah. Also probably <laughs> but, a lot less ballet dancing in the life of William of Orange. Uh, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know. <laughs> well, there might have been giant cheeseburgers then. <laughs> I guess that's fair. I have. Then you're right. It's a very faithful tale of, of William <laughs> Orange, as far as we know. Uh, but it was performed first in August of '88 in the King's Theatre in Edinburgh, Scotland, and then uh, September of and October of '88 in the Sadler Wells Theatre in London. Uh, some recordings of the Edinburgh shows uh, were mixed with some studio sessions to make what would be assembled into the 11th studio album for the band, their last of the 80s, I Am Curious Orange, released in October of 88. I'll play a little bit of the song Curious Orange, and then we'll discuss the album. kind of hinted at it already and while i would have loved to see this show i don't know that the album is compelling on its own yeah yeah i think my favorite song from this album is the overture which Mm -hmm. says all you need to know i think yeah (laughs) i think that and then you know they the opening and closing is you know a reimagining of hip priest in the form of new big prince and new big priest uh which i think are fine but still not yeah like hip priest was better just stick with that yeah i think this is also where like uh you know i'm getting a little bit of fall fatigue nine albums in i'll be honest (laughs) i think at this point i'm listening to it going like man remember prince yeah right it feels like so long ago now i mean i was getting like how many albums 
how many albums of Prince did we listen to? Six or seven, two of which we were did. double albums, so about nine. Like, I was getting Prince fatigue yeah. seven or eight albums in. Like, I had fall fatigue by the time <laughs> we got past uh, Nation Saving Grace. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the Overture and, to a certain extent, Curious Orange, the song, were kind of my my takeaways, and then that's the first half of the CD, and then you can, <laughs> then you're kind right, of... Right, right. No, actually, and and I say like, oh, I liked the overture the best, and that's that's all you need to say about the album. I actually did like the overture; like, that was a good song. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that's that's the highlight, right? Like, you don't. Yeah. Hopefully, you don't go to a musical or a dance, and the overture is the the peak pinnacle of what you're going to experience, and then it's all downhill from there. Yeah, and that that although, one is... although if you're going to be rolled out on stage on a giant cheeseburger, you want that to be a little downhill. So. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I mean, that overture is a purely Bricks Smith uh, oh, yeah. composition. So yeah, that's and that's kind of it. Would be kind of the last one because this isn't just the end of the eighties. But in uh, nineteen eighty nine, the two would divorce and she would leave the band. Uh, she would release an album with what had been her side project for a couple of years called the Adult Net. Released their album, The Honey Tangle, in nineteen eighty nine. Uh, guitarist uh, Martin Brama from the original lineup would come back to replace her for a while. Uh, long enough to record their 1990 album, Extricate, after which he and Marsha Schofield both left. Bricks did return for a couple albums in the mid-90s before leaving for good. Uh, Carl Burns would also return on drums for a bit, but in 96, longtime guitarist Craig Scanlon left, and in 98, bassist Steve Hanley left after a rather ugly show in New York that actually ends with Mark getting arrested for assault. And then that would begin the real cavalcade of fall members coming and going, uh, Ultimately, by the end, there were 66 members of the fall over the years, 31 studio albums, a whole bunch of live albums, compilations, right up until 2017's New Facts Emerge, released about six months before Marky Smith would die of lung and kidney cancer at age 60. Mm. And he performed right up until the very end, singing from a wheelchair for many of those 2017 shows. That's impressive. Yeah. You know, he was generously called mercurial and probably accurately called a fucking asshole but mm-hmm. he was undoubtedly a unique frontman of a unique band for sure but now let's get to the top fives Aaron, what did you come away with as your top five uh fall songs fall songs all right okay so here is my question uh mm-hmm. do non-album singles count or are we just sticking with albums Oh, absolutely. Any, any song from the era is on the table. Any song from the era. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, apologies to Bombast, which just got dropped out of the <laughs> top five. Uh, also, Eat Yourself Fitter, which is a good uh, honorable mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but number five for me is My New House uh, off okay. of nice. Nation Saving Grace. Um, Bombast is now an honorable mention from the same album, but My New House <laughs> is number five. Uh, number four is Container Drivers from Grotesque. Nice. But my retention about their wages Sometimes Tom Shep's leers Sometimes Tom Shep's leers Uh, 
Uh, number three is Steak Place from Friends Experiment. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of those getting back to the the commenting on things. Uh, number totally. two is Smile, um, okay. off of Perverted for Perverted by Language, uh, which I, I we didn't talk enough about that song but that i think is the song where marky smith's vocals are the best because so often he's just speaking into the microphone and he's got like a unique style but in that particular one like he just goes ape shit and it's great um And then my number one, if we're counting non-album singles, is totally wired. Nice, yeah, those are those are good ones. There is yeah. uh, not any explicit overlap, though. Some of your honorable mentions are also my honorable mentions. Okay, I, all right. I, I ended up having like, you know, I was going through these. You know, I listened to all these a bunch of times, and then the I go through one last time and kind of make that playlist where I'm adding a song here and there as I'm going along. And then yep, yep. I, I actually ended up with like 15 songs uh, in my, that I had to whittle down. Three, so I was kind of surprised by that. And I had 11, I had 11 that I had to listen yeah. to. Oh, I uh, had, so, no, I had 12 because I'm just looking at album tracks here. So uh, 12 counting totally wired. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they definitely are, uh, you know, they've made great songs throughout a good portion of these albums. So I think it's, it was, I was impressed that I was able to pick out so many that I liked, mm-hmm. but, uh, for my top five, I ended up going number five. I went with uh, Victoria from okay. experiment. Uh, number four, I go with room to live from room to live. Mm-hmm. I think that one was a really good song. And, and one that I think was a little more of a, um, uh, almost a little more introspective for Mark. I think it was a little less, aggressive that uh, maybe some of the other ones that I was kind of surprised by. Number three, I go with Paintwork from This Nation Saving Grace. Okay. Uh, two, I go I Feel Voxish from Perverted by Language. Mm-hmm. That one, that bass line gets me every time. And I think it, it, it's another good vocal performance. I think Perverted by Language actually might have some of Mark's best vocals in general. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Smile and then Smile, I yeah, Feel Voxish, for sure. Red Ashford is. Eat Yourself Fitter yeah. is another good one for, for his vocals. 
Yeah, he does find a way to not just be that monologuing, surly drunk right, that right. a lot of the early ones are. But then uh, it's capped off for me at number one by Living Too Late from Ben Sinister, or from the longer version of Ben Sinister, if you have the CD or cassette. Right. That one was ended up being one of my favorites. I don't know if you heard that one. I don't know if I heard it either. Sometimes life is like a new bar, plastic seat, beer below par, food with no taste, music rates. I'm living too late. I'm living too late. I was talking once my favorite while, but now no conversation ends. Before it's done, maybe I'm living too long. But if you get, uh, well, let's I'll go, go back to, and listen to it again. Yeah, that one ended up being one of my favorites. It's kind of like, you know, it's something about struggling with middle age, which he, he was perhaps fortuitously struggling with at this point because he actually his middle age would have been thirty or so. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a, it was an impressive song for me again with another good bass and guitar and rhythm section in general. But uh, so, what did you you? Which one is your favorite album that you would pick? Uh, I've, I've said it nation saving grace. Um, number two for me is hex induction hour, which is interesting only because I didn't pull out any songs from hex induction hour, like of the 12 that I went back and listened to zero from that album. But I think from start to finish, it's, it's quality enough without there being any particular standout track that it's one of the best ones. But yeah, nation saving grace is my number one. Yeah. For me, mine was Ben Sinister, actually. I think mm. you get so much of the various types of fall on this record, I think. You get out the top, you get the gloomy, dark rock fall. You get the poppy fall with shoulder pads. You get a great cover with Mr. Pharmacist. You get experimental with like US 80s, 90s, Gross Chapel. Uh, I think you get a little bit of everything. And then you also have my favorite song, Living Too Late, if you right. get the, the extended version. And I think the uh, if you pick up the recent one, it's a two-disc uh, release from Beggar's Banquet, I think from 2019, that has the album and all the singles, as well as about 40 pages of interviews so that are, are, are all fascinating. But yeah, for me, it was Ben Sinister, probably set, followed by This Nation's Saving Grace. That one's yeah. an easy number two, but I think for some reason I... Felt drawn to Ben Sinister a little more. Do you have a least favorite album? Least favorite, I think, would have to be Curious Orange. I think that's okay. the one. I think mostly just because it was forgettable by this by this point. I think that's it, fair. There's yeah. something better on every one than this. And I, there's none. You know, I might have put Hex Induction towards the bottom only because it had the only songs I was actively skipping when I was listening to it. Okay. You know, but, but I think they do have a fantastic sound on that album. They, mm-hmm. I think it's so, it, it is a very, those two drummers are both firing on all cylinders at that point. And so it is, a, it is still a fun sounding album. All right. But that about wraps up our trip through the Falls catalog, all nine albums of it. Cool. Uh, next time we move out of the punk clubs and go into the dance clubs as we hear six albums by Grace Jones. 
So until then, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to Marky Smith and the scores of musicians that tolerated him long <laughs> enough to perform with him. Thank you to all the fall fans out there for the extensive research online. And thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you. So until next time, don't forget, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. I'll see you next time. Since I ranked all those Prince albums last time, I thought I would mix it up a little this week and rank all the Falls 80s albums as well. I went ahead and posted the 15-song Fall playlist that I made before, narrowing it down to my top five. You can find all those along with the show notes at actin.wordpress.com, actn.wordpress.com. Follow us on Twitter at andyhearsit, facebook.com slash andyhearsit. Email me at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. Rate and review the show. Tell your friends. Let me know, too, what are your favorite 80s tunes, which 80s albums I still need to hear. And let me know, too, what your favorite fall albums are post-80s. Just like with Prince, I know there are a ton to dig into still. Thanks again, and see you next time. <laughs>